Thanks, Natalie. Well, good morning and welcome uh, to Auckland EV. My name's Rowan. I want to add my welcome to Andrews. So great to see you here as we gather together and work through this book that is the Bible in a Year plan killer, Leviticus. So we often get stuck. Uh, and so as we come along to this passage today, why don't we pray and ask God to help us to see what is going on here? Because if we don't understand this, we don't understand Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you so much for your word. That you haven't remained silent, that you have spoken to us. As we have just heard your word read by your spirit, help us to see today the incredible implications of this day of atonement for us, for our lives, for how we feel and for our future. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, guilt is one of the most powerful emotions that we experience. Uh, Psychologists tell us that to feel guilt is a normal part of human emotion, something all of us experience at some point in time. If we don't experience guilt, it can mean one of only two things. One, we've never done anything wrong. Or two, that we set what right and wrong are. That truth is relative to us and we get to choose what right and wrong are. Now, the fact that all of us experience guilt at one point or another in our lives points to the fact that there is something or someone greater than us. Whether that be a government or a God, uh, some cultural norms or some philosophical ideology, there's some external moral standard, an idea of right or wrong that holds us to account, or at least holds our emotions to account, because we feel guilty. The reason we feel guilty is that we act in a way that we think we shouldn't. So our emotions point out that our actions were wrong. If you don't think you were acting in a way that was wrong, you wouldn't feel guilty, you just move on. We hate it when people try to make us feel guilty because we think it was right, but they say, no, it wasn't. And you're like, stop trying to make me feel guilty. The fact that each of us has felt guilt shows us that deep down, each of us believe we have purpose. Let me kind of unpack this for you for a second. If we were accidents, if we just existed as just some random chance, life would just be. Right and wrong wouldn't exist. There'd be no guidelines and there'd be no guilt. Now, life without guilt sounds great, doesn't it? But not if it means that there's nothing right, no good. If nothing matters, then we don't matter. There's no purpose to why we are here and what life is about. But if there is a creator and we are made in his image, then we need to relate appropriately to him. God, by very definition, is the center of all things. He's the, he's the first mover. He's the one who made all things and sustains all things. We owe him our very lives, which means we need to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The problem is we don't. And because of that, we experience guilt, or we should do at least, for we are guilty before the God who made us. Now, the book of Leviticus has been all about how Israel, God's chosen people, could approach a God who is perfect, who is holy. Remember, God is is perfect. He sets what right and wrong is. He is the very definition of goodness and righteousness and and, and what what is pure. He's never done anything wrong. Therefore, he has never felt guilt. God is holy Humanity is not. God is perfect. Humanity is not. And that makes relationship with God impossible for you and me. It makes relationship with God impossible for a sinful 
humanity. But what we find in Leviticus is that God in his goodness and mercy has provided a way for his people to enter into his presence, to have relationship with him. I don't know if you've ever entered into the presence of someone scary. Uh, for me growing up, the scariest person I knew was Sarah's dad. As I, as I was dating Sarah's dad, he didn't think I, I wasn't the most popular um, kind of student amongst uh, the teachers at my school, and he was a teacher at my school. Whenever I saw him, it was always a little bit awkward being in his presence and thinking, what is he thinking of me? And I could see his eyes just judging me all the time and thinking, like, he's not good enough for my daughter, which I'm not. It's true. So I knew the truth. It was just scary being in his presence. It was scary coming into relationship with him. Well, how much more it is coming into relationship with the creator of the universe. That required sacrifice. It required the spilling of blood, which I'm sure Sarah's dad would have liked as well for me to spill some blood at that moment. See, to be in right relationship with God once we've rejected the life-giving God meant that we're rejecting life itself. And that really our blood should be spilled. If you say to the life-giving God, I want nothing to do with you, we deserve death and our blood to be spilt. But instead of spilling the blood of the guilty, God, through this system he set up in Leviticus, made it possible by the blood of um, a perfect sacrifice to deal with Israel's rebellion against him and to restore relationship with God with a ritual that they call the Day of Atonement. Yom Kippur is what the Jews called it. Sounds cool, doesn't it? Yom Kippur. I don't know. I think it sounds cool. Maybe you don't. But it was a ritual that they had every year, once a year, that allowed the people to, to deal with their guilt before God, to have their guilt wiped out. Now, I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about it, but to have guilt wiped out means the idea of forgiveness. And forgiveness is always asking someone else to bear the guilt of another. So if I do something wrong, I come to your house and I smash a dinner plate. Sorry, you know, smash a dinner plate. I would say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. And if you say, I forgive you, what you're, what you're saying is that you will bear the cost of that broken plate. You'll bear the cost of not having that plate together as it once was before I came into your house and it now being shattered and unusable. But not only that, you're also saying that you won't get the broken plate, you won't let the broken plate get in the way of our relationship. You're actually saying, I forgive you. I forgive you for this, the cost of breaking the plate and look, we're still okay. You and me, we're all right. Just don't break anymore. <laughs> now, not many relationships are broken over a broken dinner plate. But a broken promise? Oh, how many are there? That's a very different story, isn't it? Just ask the friend who's betrayed another's confidence. Or the person who has betrayed their spouse. No, broken promises matter, both relationally and really to the people. And the Day of Atonement was the day that God reached out to His people who had broken their promises to treat Him as their God, who hadn't treated the one who made them as the true and living God of the universe. But God reached out to His people and gave them a way that their rebellion against Him could be borne by another, ultimately borne by God Himself, so that the, the problem of rebellion and the relationship that rebellion destroyed could be restored. That's what atonement means. It's bringing us at one with God, at one mint. There's a little memory hook I had as a kid to remind me in, in kind of Sunday school of what it meant that I can now be at one with God. 
The New Testament uses the word propitiation, which means God deals with not only the the, the punishment of, of what we deserve, but also the restored relationship. Both aspects of that. The process of being made at one with God wasn't just fixing the broken plate of what we'd done wrong in sin, but it was restoring the relationship that that sin caused as well. In Leviticus, we've been getting closer and closer through the chapters kind of 1 to 10 and then chapters 11 to 15 to the presence of God. We've been approaching the place where God was in this tent, where he dwelt in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies. In Leviticus 4, we saw the Israelites were to bring their sacrifices to the entrance of the tent of meeting, but no further. The high priest could enter into the tent of meeting, but only into the outer room, not the Holy of Holies in the center. There was a curtain that separated it. He was not to go beyond that presence. But in chapter 10 that we hear about at the start of chapter 16 as well, we hear about the two foolish sons of the high priest. And never trust the sons of a priest, right? They're dodgy guys. Uh, They come in, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, and look at what happens. They enter into this holy place on their own terms, however they want. They're like, God's rules, whatever. Uh, As you look at other parts of the passage, they're probably drunk. Chapter 10, 6 kind of points out to that. But have a look at what happens. Chapter 10, verse 1. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, each took his own firepan, put fire in it, placed some incense on it, and presented unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them to do. Then the fire came from the Lord and consumed them, for they died before the Lord. Now, I'm so thankful that Sarah's dad didn't have the power of God in this way. These guys rock up and try and treat God the way that they think is right. And we're introduced here to a problem. It's the problem of the priests. The priests were to come before God and and offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. But the problem with Aaron's sons was that they were not invited to come before God in this way. They offered unauthorized fire. They thought, we'll worship God our way on our terms. And how often do we hear that today? How often do you find yourself saying, I'd like to worship God by doing this or that? Hear the warning of Aaron's sons. To worship God on our own terms rather than his terms is just as offensive to God as not worshiping him at all. It's not good enough to say, look, I was trying to worship you my way on my own terms. Hear it clearly, friends. We can only approach God on his terms. Only the way he says. So thinking, look, I like to worship God by meditating or bowing down to God in a certain way or defining my own way or being a good person or doing what I think is right is offensive to God. Learn from Aaron's sons who went up in smoke. Approach God on his terms, not your own. And so now in chapter 16, the problem of the priests of Israel raises its head. God outlines how that is the priest who might enter into the Holy of Holies and present sacrifices to God in that place where God dwelt, in the presence of God on behalf of his people. So listen to what he says, Leviticus 16 verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of two of Aaron's sons when they approached the presence of the Lord and died. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he may not come whenever he wants into the holy place behind the curtain in front of the mercy seat on the ark, or else he will die. 
because I appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Aaron is to enter the most holy place in this way, with a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Finally, on the Day of Atonement, once a year, the high priest might enter into God's presence and present to God a sacrifice on behalf of the people to deal with their rebellion against him. But notice what has to happen to the priest first. He can only enter after this cleansing ritual is being declared clean, like we saw last week, but he also needs to offer a sacrifice for his own sin. See, the problem of the priests had been the guilt of the priests. Point number one, the guilt of the priests. Picture this for a moment. Here's Israel watching the priest make a sin offering. He kind of walks in and walks towards the Holy of Holies. No cleansing. He burns things on the altar, but no mention of atonement or forgiveness. And this is the guy that's walking in and bearing your guilt. With Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, we've got guilt-laden priests trying to be between God and the people. And they walk in and they soil the the sanctuary, the place where God is, with their own sin. So here God in his mercy sets up instructions for the priests to sacrifice a bull for the priest's own sin. Now bulls were expensive. They were way more expensive than goats and sheep. I tried to look up uh, the current prices, about $2,500 for a full bull uh, at the moment, if you wanted butchered. Uh, in terms of, of a goat, around three, dollars $400 was a bit sketchy to try and find that price. Maybe someone can fill me in on the latest goat prices later. But the whole point is the priest had to offer a bigger sacrifice than the one that was offered for the whole of Israel. It was a big sacrifice that had to be made for his own sin. And what we see is the closer you get to God, the more significant the cost of being in his presence. The closer you get to God, the more significant the cost of being in his presence. The priests who were originally to wear ornate clothing as they represented the people to God, they walked around with fancy clothes that kind of had these special gems on them and those sorts of things. The priest was then, in verse 4, called to dress down. It says these holy linen garments. It was actually take off your fancies and just put on your pajamas. That's the kind of picture here because it was a picture of the priest needing to humble himself before he came before God. While he stood in front of the nation of Israel, yes, he was special, but as he came close to God, he was nothing compared to the holiness of God. And then by offering a bull in verse 16, we read this. 16, sorry, in verse 6 of chapter 16. Aaron was to make atonement for himself and his household. Then he could enter into God's presence. But as he went in, he went with a wall of incense. And he's carrying incense in. And sometimes we go, what is all this incense about, this smelly stuff? Well, it wasn't just to smell nice to God. It was actually creating a barrier, a scare, like a, a barrier to stop you kind of from seeing God's holiness and his glory. You know, sometimes as I'd approach Sarah's dad, as Sarah and I were dating, I'd think about, you know, some sort of present or saying something nice. It was a smokescreen to stop him from seeing my failings as I came into his presence. Here, you get a portable curtain separating God from this high priest who walks into the holiness of God. And he walks in and there's blood everywhere. You can't miss that in this chapter. You're like, what is going on? There's sprinkling of blood, blood here, blood there. Like it was a bloody mess, literally. I thought that was funny. <laughs> it wasn't in my notes, though, so maybe I should have left it out. 
Why was there so much blood? Because he was showing, God was showing the consequences of rebellion against the life-giving God. See, growing up, I wasn't very cultured. Uh, we had kind of a small hobby farm. I was into riding motorbikes. I didn't read kind of fancy novels or plays. Shakespeare was, I don't know, um, actually it was the name of a financial advisor that advertised on TV. I didn't really know uh, what it was about at all. But when I got to high school, we had to read Shakespeare. And there was one play that kind of stuck in my mind, um, partly because I couldn't really understand the English. I'm like, this is not English. This is some other language. But there was a scene in Macbeth where Macbeth had, had killed someone and, and he was trying to wash his hands from the blood and there's blood everywhere. And he says this, Will all great Neptune's ocean wash, wash this blood clean from my hand? No. My hand will rather the multitudinous sea in Cardinine make the green one red. Right? You get it? I didn't. I'm like, what is this? And we kind of had it explained. that, In other words, they're saying that, that, that Macbeth had done this wrong and there was blood all over his hands. And as he tried to wash it off, he found that not, it wasn't washing off his hands, but it was making the ocean, all of Neptune's sea, tainted red. As the priest enters the holy place, he's got blood on his hands. Whose? His own. Well, it's the bull's, but it's because of what he's done. And, but what we see is as he sprinkles it round, it doesn't wash God into redness. God doesn't come condemned, but the, other, the opposite happens. That he is cleansed because of the holiness of God. God looks at the blood being spilt and says, that should have been your blood, high priest. That should have been your blood, Israel. But I will choose to pour out the, the punishment you deserve on these animals, these pure animals, instead of you. And we see that even the mercy seat, the, the place where God was to show his mercy, which is on top of the Ark of the Covenant, and the tabernacle itself were affected. As we saw last week, the effects of sin's pollution are everywhere. Even in the sacrificial system God set up, atonement had to be offered even for the mercy seat and the tabernacle and the altar. It's very clear with this weird ritual that if Israel were to be at one with God, if their guilt was to be forgiven and they would have any relationship with the creator of the universe, they had to deal with the guilt of the priest. He could not represent them before God with sin of his own. He must be atoned for. And then, once the, the guilt of the priest could be sorted, they could deal with a second problem. And that's point number two, the guilt of the people. The guilt of the people. Just like there was no perfect priest, there were no perfect people. Look at verse 7 of chapter 16. Next, he will take the two goats and place them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Have you ever wondered, why did the goats actually go with them? Like, if I was a goat, I'd be like, no, Fred just went. He didn't come back last year. I'm not going to go again this year. You're freaking out. But the picture is, the goats come. After Aaron casts lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord, the other for the uninhabitable place, he's to present the goat chosen by lot for the Lord and sacrifice it as a sin offering. But the goat chosen by lot for an uninhabitable place is to be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement with it by sending it into the wilderness for an uninhabitable place. Last week, we saw the story of the owls. This week, it's the story of the goats. Two goats. One will be chosen to die and have its blood spilt on behalf of the people. The other, the high priest would lay his hands on, confess the sins of the nation, and then send that, way, that goat away as the takeaway goat. 
Now, don't think McDonald's or Uber Eats when you think takeaway goat. Uh, It wasn't that. The idea was the goat would be sent far away, symbolically kind of showing how far their sins had been taken. Uh, When our kids were younger, uh, and they were going through a lot of nappies, we kind of had this rule in our household that if it was the number one, the nappy could just go in, in, in the normal bin. But if it was the number two, that thing had to be sent far, far away. It would be wrapped up in some plastic and packaged, and we'd, we'd give it to some of the older kids and say, here, take this and like run. Take it out of the house to the bin at the farthest extremities of our property and put it there until the takeaway truck comes and takes it away even further to somewhere else and it gets burnt or buried or something else. Right? It was this picture of, man, that, that thing that's inside that nappy is bad. We don't want any of that near us. We don't want it in our house. We don't want it near us. It needs to be sent far, far away. That is the role of the takeaway goat. The priest confesses the sins of Israel on the goat's head, and then they take it far away, out of Israel, out of the camp, to the furthest extremity, to show that their sins had been taken away from them. What a symbol. In Isaiah 53, 6, he says this, The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's this idea of the sins of the nation being placed on another and then being taken far away. It's why David in Psalm 103 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. It's outside. It's a way. Get that stuff away from me. Now, I know as we hear all these rituals, it kind of sounds weird. Blood, goats, taking away, people washing clothes. It's just weirdness that's there. But we need to see that unless we get this ritual of a day of atonement, we don't understand the heart of Christianity. Because the ritual of the day of atonement was an amazing gift. Point number three, the gift of the ritual. The screen of incense provided for the priest, the blood of the bull and the ram for the priest, the blood of the perfect goat, and then the takeaway goat sent away, then the washing... All these things are provided by God so that an unholy Israel who didn't deserve to know God, who deserved to be wiped out and said, I want nothing to do with you, deserved to die, to bleed out, could be in relationship with a perfect God. This was the only alternative to death. This ritual was something amazing for the people of Israel. I'm alive now. I can speak to my God as God because of him treating my sins onto the takeaway goat and the blood of the goat and the bull. God in his gracious mercy comes to them. They don't go to him. He goes to them. If you notice the order of the passage, the priest, his work starts from the Holy of Holies, right in God's presence, and moves outwards and outwards to the people. It's a symbol of God's mercy coming from him to the people, not the other way around. And then the people get this amazing relief. The day of atonement gave to people year after year. Ah, my sins have been carried away. My relationship with God is possible. Another part of this gift was the yearly cadence. That reminder that yearly they could bring their sins before God. The nation, the cost of their rebellion would be done and taken by this goat. And year after year it would be sent away. But it had a problem in that it needed to be repeated year after year. See, I hate things you have to repeat and do. You know those things that you've got to do all the time, like cutting the grass? So annoying. You cut the grass, it grows again. 
You're like, why did I bother cutting it? It just keeps growing. Or cutting your nails. I don't know what God was thinking there. Like, my legs don't grow, but why do my nails grow? I've got to cut them. Well, it did grow at once. Yeah. There's all sorts of things that we need to do like that. Cleaning the house. You clean the house and you turn around and it's dirty again. I'm like, who did that? Why is that the case? Why do things get dusty? That's just so annoying. You're like, I wipe that and then it just magically reappears from the sky in our house. I just hate having to repeat things over and over and over. Now, saying I love you, right? Apparently saying that once isn't enough. At the wedding day, yeah, I said the vows, it's sweet, but you need to keep saying it over and over. Tip for young marrieds, or if you're thinking about getting married, you can have that one for free. How often I'm sick of saying I'm sorry. (laughs) When we fail and let someone down, someone we love and care for. So it was with Israel. After all their sins had been forgiven and they found themselves Involved in a whole new quota of sin and rebellion against God, they kept doing it because, well, they had hardened hearts. As you go on throughout Israel's history, we hear of the brokenness of their leaders, the brokenness of their priests, the brokenness of the people who kept turning against God and rejecting Him. The system didn't do anything to fix the problem of the human heart. It just provided a way that they could... See, their sins taken away, well, it needed to be done over and over and over. And while the Day of Atonement was an amazing gift for the people of Israel, as we get to the New Testament, we hear some scary news. It never worked. It never worked. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. Since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come, And not the actual form of those realities. It can never perfect the worshipper by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered since the worshippers, once purified, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in the sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. This system set up by God in Leviticus was a shadow. It never actually did anything. It was God setting up something to say, hey, there's something greater coming. Trust me at my word now and I'll forgive your sins because I know something greater is coming. The blood of the bull and the goat, they didn't actually do anything. They can't stand in our place. They're not a representative of us. It's a bull and a goat. They never did anything. There is nothing you can offer God, no bull, no goat that can perfect your conscience. And then we arrive at the position where we get, well, if that doesn't work, and we try a whole heap of new things today. You know, if I live a good life, if I try and be morally the best that I can, or if I try and do good deeds, maybe that will restore my relationship with God. Maybe I could read my Bible more or serve on more teams, although you should think through doing that. Um, But, you know, if I come to church... No ritualistic systems like praying to a priest or to Mary or saying special prayers or burning incense to God are going to do anything toward our relationship with Him and dealing with the judgment we deserve. None of it allows us to go before God into His presence without instantaneously dying. So what was the point of the laws? What was the point of reading Leviticus? Well, Hebrews 10 verse 9. This is a symbol for the present time. All that existed for us. During which, 
Gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the worshipper's conscience. They are physical regulations that only deal with food and drink and various washings imposed until the time of restoration. All of that Levitical system was a symbol to point forward to what God was really going to do. The gift of someone better. Point number four, the gift of someone better. Hebrews 7 verse 26. For this is the kind of high priest we need. Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as the high priests do, first for their own sins, then for those of the people. He did this once for all time when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak. But the promise of the oath which came after the law appoints a son who has been perfected forever. The Old Testament high priest was sinful. Jesus never was. The Old Testament high priest had to offer sacrifices for himself, but Jesus didn't. He was perfect, holy, blameless, and pure as Jesus steps onto the stage of this earth. He is the perfect high priest. He is the perfect human. And then Hebrews tells us that when he died in our place, he didn't just walk into a man-made tent. He gave his own blood, not the blood of bulls and goats, and he walked straight up to God. He went through the curtain into the Holy of Holies, not in a man-made tent, but in the reality of heaven, in God's presence. Jesus, as he dies, that, that curtain that separates us from the holiness of God was ripped in two. You see it in Mark 15. When he dies on the cross, it was teared, so access to God is possible. Because of Jesus, we can have access straight into God's presence. No smokescreen needed. And Jesus didn't just go into the symbol of God's presence, a man-made tent. He went right into God's presence, in the heavens, right up to where God was. Look at Hebrews 9.11. But the Messiah, which is Christ, Jesus, he has appeared, high priest of the good things that have come, in the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered the most holy place. Right? The Old Testament people trusted in this shadow. And though they didn't know it, it was the future work of Jesus they were trusting in. Muhammad comes and claims to be a prophet of God, but he never went directly into God's presence on our behalf. He never atoned for our sin, nor does Islam try to have any atonement for anything. Buddha never claimed to go into God's presence. The different philosophies of the world don't fix our relationship with God, but Jesus is better. He's a better sacrifice, perfect human. He's a better priest. And he takes us into a better tabernacle to God himself. What it means is we don't need priests anymore. I am not your priest you don't need me to mediate between you and God. You don't need me to take you into God's presence because Jesus has done it for you. It also means we don't need other ways of getting into God's presence or making God happy enough that we can get there. Often today we think about music. We think, yes, if the music's great, it can bring me into the presence of God. When we sing, we're not ushering one another into God's presence. Music's a wonderful gift that God's given us to help connect our head and our heart, to be able to sing to one another and sing to God. In fact, we're commanded to sing as we gather. But we sing as a response to what Jesus has done, from Him bringing us into the presence of God, not in order to get there. 
And as we sing, sometimes people go, yeah, but I feel like I was in God's presence. Well, you're feeling things. We should have feelings as we sing. We're singing about what God has done. We're singing about who he is and that we can call him our father in heaven, our home. It should move us to tears sometimes or maybe raise our hands to him or maybe clap with joy. We should respond. This is what God has done. But that feeling is not the presence of God. But our response to what God has done in Jesus. Jesus has done it all. You don't need another mediator. No priest, no bishop, no Mary, no pope. No church, no guru, no one but Jesus. Sometimes people have said, look, could you pray for me? And I'm happy to pray for people. It's not a problem at all, but my prayers are no more significant from anyone else's. I'm just a person like you. We pray because of Jesus to the Father. That's the only reason I can pray is because Jesus intercedes for us. I have no greater access to God than you. Jesus gives all who trust in him. Complete access to God when we should be killed on the spot. How amazing is that? How amazing is this truth? Do you see how great Jesus is? He's a better priest. He's a better sacrifice. He brings us into a better tabernacle, a better place of relationship with God and produces a better result, a permanent result, the gift of something better. That's the last point today. Hebrews 9 verse 12. Jesus entered the most holy place once for all, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow, sprinkling those who are defiled, sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of the Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciousness from dead works to serve a living God. Do you see what Jesus achieved for those who trust in him? Our conscience cleansed for good. No more feeling guilty. None. Not because the rules have been moved so that we fit in and we're now okay, but because Jesus fulfilled them fully. And for all the wrongs that we've done, he's paid the price for it. Our conscience is cleansed. We bear no guilt before God because Jesus paid it all. Eternal redemption, the writer of Hebrews tells us. Our sins, past, present and future, are totally dealt with. Redeemed means brought back. Jesus' death on the cross paid for all our sins. I don't need to keep coming back year after year after year and going, oh, what if I sin in the future? I've got to make sure, you know, if I'm about to die, I've got to pray um, and make sure I've confessed everything at that moment. If you trust Jesus, he has paid for everything, past, present and future. That gives eternal security for us who trust in him, that eternity is ours because he's given us his perfection. As God looks at you, he sees Jesus And he sees us as perfect because of that. Perfection attained is what we're given. Look at verse 14 of chapter 10 of Hebrews. For by by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. Now, sanctified means made holy. We're made holy by Jesus' death and resurrection. that he's offered his life for us. So by the one offering... He has perfected forever those who trust in him, those who are united to him by faith. Not because of anything that you or I have done, but solely on the basis of Jesus. 
It's not that we might get a bit better over time. He said, we will be perfect. Not even we will be perfect sometime in the future. He says, because of Jesus, if you trust him, you are perfect in God's sight. You are perfect. Despite what you've done, despite the sins we've committed, despite our failings and our brokenness, if you trust in Jesus, you are perfect. As God looks at you, you are perfect because he sees Jesus. So often we feel like we fail, and we do. But we must not forget that if we trust Jesus, God sees his perfection. If you trust Jesus, you're perfect in God's sight. If you slip into thinking that, I need to do some stuff as well. I've got to work really hard in these areas, which I'll get to in a minute that we do need to. But if you slip into thinking that God is not pleased with me, then you're rejecting the reality that as God looks at you, he sees Jesus. You're saying that God needs Jesus plus you doing some good stuff. You've denied Jesus was enough. You're saying something else was needed other than him. Friends, Jesus has been offered once for all. So church, for those of you who trust in Jesus, you are not only holy and saints as we saw last week, you are perfect as God looks at you. Let me ask you, I want to hear it loud. What are you? Perfect because of Jesus. Let's hear it again. What are you? How amazing is it to be able to stand free from guilt? Free from the anger and wrath of God that you and I deserve. Free to enjoy God's gracious gift of life and relationship with Him. Free to have access to the true and living God because of Jesus' work. To call God our Father, to call Jesus our brother. To call the new creation our home. That is the reality for those who trust in Jesus because of what He has done. Because He fulfills the Day of Atonement. Look at what has been given to us in verse 15 of chapter 9. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called might receive the promise of the internal inheritance, because a death has taken place for redemption from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Eternal inheritance, life that does not end. How the struggles of this life so often weigh us down. But here we see that the weight of guilt has been washed away when we see what Jesus has done and true freedom has been offered. Your future is secure. It's got nothing to do with what you or I do. Nothing. But entirely what Jesus has done. And for those that trust that he has done it for them, that is their future. Eternal life, eternal inheritance, a great freedom. No longer needing to try to live perfectly and having that weigh us down. Have I been good enough? Have I not? Have I been good enough? Have I not? But knowing Jesus was good enough. Jesus was good enough. Jesus was good enough. We're freed, the writer of Hebrews tells us, so that we can serve. Look at verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works, so that we can serve the living God? We are free to live totally and wholly for him. Not because we have to try and earn our way to God, but because he's already done it for us. Despite our failings, despite our imperfections, despite our inadequacies, we can stand and serve God with our all because Jesus paid it all. That's why we're here. That's why you exist and I exist. 
to live with God in right relationship with Him, proclaiming who He is, living for Him, where our future cannot be taken away from us, where our sins cannot weigh us down because He has paid it all. So church, as you come to Jesus, as you see what He has done for us, that He is the better high priest, that He is a better sacrifice, that He brings us in to a better tabernacle in relationship with God and offers us our consciences cleansed, relationship with God, eternal life, live for Him. What can they take from us? Serve Him with your all in everything. Experience the freedom that Jesus gives you to live for Him. Freedom from guilt. Freedom from the weight of your sin. Freedom to serve, to respond to our King Jesus and follow Him. Friends, if you've not yet accepted Jesus' death in your place, can I say today, do not bear the weight of your own blood. Do not stand on your own two feet before the true and living God. Come to Him because of what Jesus has done, and call him your father. I remember the day I actually married Sarah, and the day I could call Sarah's dad my dad too. His anger toward me gone, I think. <laughs> Relationship with him because of the goodness of his daughter. Friends, Jesus is saying, come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He has offered you his life. Don't muck around. Come and put your life in Jesus' hands today. Let's pray. Father God, as we can come to you now only because of the blood of Jesus, we are so thankful. We're so thankful you don't treat us as we deserve. We're so thankful that our sins are no longer a barrier, but that you've taken them far, far away in Jesus. Help us to be amazed at the freedom we have, that our consciences are cleansed, that as you look at us, you see Jesus no matter what. Help us to keep trusting him, to put our life in his hands, that our only hope is Jesus. And help us to serve, to live for you, not worried about what the world thinks, but what it is to put you first in everything we do. Father, today for those who for the first time have seen what Jesus has done, we ask you would draw them to yourself. We are sorry for the times we've turned our backs on you. Please forgive us and renew in us this feeling of guilt-free because Jesus has paid it all and help us to live for you in everything. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful, and if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.